Well, as we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew in our series, Jesus Works, I just want to say he really does. But we are going to be in Matthew chapter 9 uh, this morning. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, uh, first book of the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we're also in Matthew chapter 9, and we have some ushers in the back that are ready to hand a Bible to you. So just put a hand up, about as boldly up as far as you'd like, and they should spot that out. Well, this past year, an unlikely movie caught my attention. It wasn't a Star Wars movie. It didn't have any superheroes in it, but it actually was a live action musical. And I I didn't make it in time to see it in the theaters, uh, but my wife and I eventually saw it and we liked it. And we showed it to our kids and they really liked it. And so we started listening to the soundtrack and we listened to it again and again and and again and again and again and again and again and we are still listening to it it's a couple of months uh, later so I've had some time to think about this movie and the movie is The Greatest Showman anybody seen this okay starring Hugh Jackman it's this feel-good poppy musical about the legendary P.T. Barnum inventor of the circus a man who in the movie is portrayed as this bold dreamer daring to give a home and a purpose uh, to the people who were the outcasts and the misfits of society. Now, Hugh Jackman actually helped shepherd this movie into creation, and he said this. He said, it started as a movie about the power of imagination and will and never giving up on your dreams, but it grew into a deeper idea that what makes you different makes you special. To add on to this quote, the director, a guy by the name of Michael Gracie, he said, it's an incredible privilege to make a film about inclusivity and acceptance. And I think that that message, that core message is part of the reason, beyond the the music and the, the great effects and the great dancing, but that message is why this film has done so well. I think it speaks to this inner need within us, a deep desire to be included. And there's a lot of people, I'd say almost everybody at some point feels kind of different from everybody else. And everyone is looking for somewhere to belong and someone to look at them and to say, you too are valuable. Now the problem was, as many articles were quick to point out, the movie version up on the silver screen had been idealized is pretty far from the actual truth about P.T. Barnum. As one newspaper, The Guardian, wrote, like many peddlers of 19th century freak shows, Barnum was more interested in exploiting people than empowering them. He exhibited African Americans with birth defects, affirming their racial inferiority, and one of his earliest hits was Joyce Heth, a blind, partially paralyzed slave that Barnum rented who he claimed was 161 years old. And when she died, Barnum held a public autopsy and charged spectators to watch. As you can see, history tells a much different story than Hollywood. But for imagine, imagine that it was just as Hollywood portrayed it. And Hugh Jackman was everything that was presented to be. My question is this, is modern day Hollywood's version of acceptance and open arms the best we can do? Is it the height of humanity that we're to admire and to strive for, or is there something even better? 
Like I said before, we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 9. In this series, we've called Jesus Works, and what we've been seeing is Jesus continues to demonstrate his power to show that he has the authority to say what he has to say. In the past few weeks, we've seen his power over nature. We've seen his power over the spiritual world. And time and time again, we've seen his power over disease. But he also gives us some clues that his healings aren't just about healing, but to point to something even more important. And we saw this last week, that he has the power to forgive sin, to remove our guilt as lawbreakers who have rebelled against God. And so the next question comes, since Jesus can forgive sin, as he showed us last week, what is he going to do with sinners? We're going to be in verse 9. Let me read it for us. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As we dig deeper into this passage, we're going to work through this in three parts. First, looking at the the story, the narrative that we just read, and then the objections, and then finally, our own need. First, the story, which I sum up as Jesus saves sinners. Let me read again for us verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I'm afraid we read this line, we move on very quickly. Oh, nice, there's another disciple. And we miss out on the enormity of what has taken place because it just does not show up on our modern radar. We say, oh, he's at a tax booth. Okay, yeah, people have never liked taxes in the history of time, and so they probably didn't like him. But we miss out on the fact that it wasn't just that they didn't like taxes. They viewed people like Matthew as traitors. They hated people like Matthew just for taking a position that helped these Roman overlords. But what made it worse is that oftentimes the people in this position used it to their own advantage. They would pad their own pockets. And so tax collectors were considered morally and religiously bankrupt. But Jesus calls them anyway. Because not only did he break barriers through people who had been marginalized uh, due to things outside of their control, like the, the leper or the Roman centurion or the woman, He also shows clearly that even those who have chosen a sinful path of living also have a place in the kingdom. And so this tax collector, this moral stain on the nation of Israel, he heard the call of Jesus, follow me. And immediately he leaves everything that he has. He won't be able to go back to that job later. They won't be saving it for him. He leaves everything and he throws a party. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
You see, in Matthew's joy of meeting Jesus, the first thing that he does is he goes out and he invites other people just like him to meet Jesus too. All of them were social outcasts. They were the people who were known for being breakers of God's law. There's a commentator who writes who says, these are the harlots, the shysters, the renegades on the outskirts of Jewish life. And Jesus is right there among them. It would have been offensive for Jesus even to enter Matthew's house. And he's reclining with them. He's eating with them. And people notice. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I want you to notice that the Pharisees are not asking their question to Jesus. They're bringing it to the disciples, I think, to sow doubt into their minds and to discourage them from following Jesus because they probably would have been a little uncomfortable about the situation themselves. And the Pharisees themselves think Jesus is doing something very wrong here. Because in that society, to share a meal with someone else, you would only do that with a close friend. Because to do so was to uh, endorse. It was, an act of, it was considered an act of endorsement of that person, not only who they are as a person, but how they lived as a lifestyle. This is a common teaching of the rabbis at the time. They said, keep far from an evil neighbor. Consort not with the wicked. So the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, the scribes, they would be okay with one of these bad people came to them to seek forgiveness or to, to repent, but they wouldn't go after them. And they absolutely would not eat with them. But Jesus was different. And he tells us why in the last two verses. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so let's, let's pull these out. There's three phrases that Jesus uses to respond to what the Pharisees are talking about. First, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And Jesus sets up at first this important metaphor for understanding his mission and the people that he's coming to help. Jesus comes as a doctor to people who are sick. And my children's pediatrics office that they go to, they have two entrances and they have uh, two waiting rooms. There's the, the well side and there's the sick side, the sick entrance and the sick waiting room. The well side is for those waiting around to get their normal well checkup and get measured for how they're growing and stuff like that. On the other side is where you sit and hope that nobody else has something worse than what your kid has because <laughs> it'll show up in about a week. Now, what if you show up to your pediatrician with your sick kid and you're worried and you're scared and you realize they've closed the sick entrance and put up a sign, please come back when you're better. <laughs> You'd find a different doctor because that doesn't work for you. That goes against what it means to be a doctor. Doctors help those who are sick to get better and that's Jesus's mission too which also tells us something about the people he's with. They are sick, which means something is wrong with them, which at first sounds really harsh, but it also means in the way that Jesus tells it that he has a cure to offer them. The next thing he says is, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is a direct rebuke of the Pharisees. 
It's a quotation from the prophet Hosea in chapter six, where God is telling the nation of Israel that though they had kept the religious rituals, they're still doing the temple sacrifices. It was hollow. It was meaningless. It was empty inside because they had lost the heart of what God desired for them. You see, God had gathered the nation of Israel out of his mercy, his grace, and yet they had no compassion to spare with anyone else. And so Jesus will use the same scripture again in chapter 12. And each time that he quotes this, it's the idea that their religious behavior, because they're neglecting those in need, it's not okay in God's eyes. Which is why Jesus finishes by saying, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, righteous has a very... uh, It's a technical theological term. It has a very specific meaning, especially you're reading through Paul's letters in the New Testament. To to be righteous is to be right with God. Something that the Bible is very clear, nobody is except Christ alone. And we, we even talk about salvation. We talk about Jesus giving us his righteousness because we couldn't do it ourselves. But Jesus here isn't talking about the the technical theological definition of righteousness. He's talking to Pharisees about how they view the world and he uses their terms. Because the Pharisees divided up the world into two different groups, the righteous and the sinners, the good and the bad. And they wanted a Messiah, they wanted a king who would come to establish the one group and destroy the other. You see, they didn't want a doctor They wanted a judge. But Jesus turns that expectation over on its head. He didn't come for those who already think they're right with God, but spoiler warning, they're not. But he came as a friend to those in need of mercy. Sin is the sickness Jesus has come to cure. And Jesus is the only one who can save sinners and make them right with God. This is the big idea of the whole passage from the beginning of calling Matthew literally out of his tax booth, his career of sin, and then having a meal with his friends. And then finally, in Jesus' answers to the religious leaders, it all points to this, Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. Those three words understood correctly are the central message of the entire Bible. That's what we call the gospel, the good news, for they are the message of salvation for a world that desperately needs it. But those words are also very offensive. And it leads me to want to talk about two primary objections that'll come up in uh, other people as well as even our own hearts when we hear this. And so here are the objections, or or why people don't actually like this Jesus of Matthew chapter 9. First one I want to talk about is the religious objection. This objection takes issue with the word saves. Not that people need to be saved, but with the fact that God would actually save those kind of people. See, this way of thinking stays prevalent even to today because people assume God loves good people. Usually, they include themselves in that category. And he doesn't love bad people because those are the ones who cause trouble and they get hooked on drugs and they sleep around and they look different and, well, they deserve whatever they have coming. And so this leads to taking pride in the good that we do as well as making a point to systematically remove all the bad people out of our lives. And just like the Pharisees, when they look around, they see failure instead of need, and they have the eyes of a judge instead of a doctor. 
Now at the core of this objection is a blindness to the internal and equal value of all people, that all people are worth saving. Now they'll say, yeah, well, people might become valuable if they get themselves cleaned up, but they're not valuable as they are now. But Jesus very clearly disagrees. For he again called Matthew while he was in his sin. He ate and hung out with sinners before they cleaned up their act. But Jesus went even further than that to show God's love. Pastor Tandy read from this at the beginning of the service. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus saves sinners as a friend of sinners because he values who they are now. Not once they've gotten the right clothes on, not once they've gotten a hold and tamed their sailor's tongue, not once they've moved out of their boyfriend's house or their girlfriend's, not even once they've come to terms and accepted everything that Jesus is eventually gonna change to them. No, Jesus engages with and he cares for people wherever they're at right now. The second objection called the world's objection. As we see this one more outside of man-made religion, or other religion. As the first objection took issue with the idea of saving those that they think unworthy, this objection takes offense to the idea of sinners. Calling them sinners because, well, that's, that's intolerant. That's narrow-minded. Some of you this morning might, might agree, and, and maybe you've actually been hurt by this term being thrown around like a sledgehammer. And so you agree, you can't say people are sinners. You can't imply that they have something wrong with them or that people have a need for something outside of themselves. You know, one of the breakout songs, a real catchy tune of The Greatest Showman is a song called This Is Me. And it's actually a really good representation of this ideology. I'll read some of the lyrics for you. It says, I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are. Now, there's a sense of tragic uh, beauty in these lyrics. And I think it's important before we move on to, to recognize that they're a reaction to the prevailing religious abuse that has failed to value. And by value, I really mean love people as they already are. And in a way, you could say that the, this side's objection that we're discussing now is a reaction not as much to Jesus as it is to the first objection. But they arrive at a new type of solution, and the rest of the song will explain it. It says, but I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send a flood, going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be, this is me. This is one of the most popular songs in the world right now. And this is what people sing. And in the movie, and you can see there in the picture, it's sung by a bearded lady, right? And others who join in, who have these obvious physical differences that have held them back from being accepted by society. But rest assured that the world around us strongly identifies this song, and not because it's all women who have facial hair. Anyone who feels outcast by what they are like or who they love or what they do 
or what they believe has been emboldened not only by this psalm, but by a society that says, I'm who I'm meant to be right now. I am me. I make no apologies. I am me. And so to Jesus, they say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take the friendship thing, but get rid of your language of sickness and sinners. I already am what is great. I don't want compassion. I want celebration. And here's why this objection, this whole ideology represented by this song and, and our society, uh, well, it means well, it, it falls short. You see, it does a great job at valuing people as they are now, which again, the Bible speaks truly to as well. All people are created in the image of God. Okay, Jesus died while we were at sinners. There is love, there is value now. But it fails, where it fails, it fails to see that none of us are now what we are meant to be. Not a single one of us. It fails to see how sin has marred and impaired us all from fulfilling our purpose. You see, if the first objection failed to see what people are now, this viewpoint fails to value what people can become. Some of you here this morning, maybe you don't even believe in God, you're unsure of Jesus, but I hope you could at least see that this way of thinking can, by definition, only take you so far. Because if the end goal is being what you already are, no matter who you are, what you are, while that might make you feel good, it doesn't really give you anywhere to go. It's like, a, it's like an archer who carries around a bow and arrows and a paintbrush and he, he shoots the arrows out and then he runs around and paints targets wherever the arrows landed. You're getting it, I see that, you're getting it. It might make him feel good. You might be able to say, I hit all the targets but your victory is hollow. And in real life, not just the metaphor, what this ideology can't do is it cannot stand up to answer the tough questions that you will face, not on the gl glitz and glamour stage, but in the darkness. Questions like, if I'm already all that I'm meant to be, why is life just terrible? Why do I do things that I don't want to do? And why do I fall into these traps? I'm, I'm living for everything that I want, but it feels empty. And the world says that I'm great, but I don't know. I'm just wondering, is this it? Is this all there really is? And Jesus offers something far better, far better. He, yes, extends value and love and mercy and friendship to all because he values them as they are, but he also knows that there is something deficient in us. He knows what we're lacking. And it's not even primarily about our, our bad habits, our destructive patterns, or even sexual orientation. It's our orientation of our heart against God. Because friends, Jesus didn't come to live and die to make people more socially acceptable, but so that they might be transformed. And he does so by changing us from the inside out with a new heart that loves and longs for and seeks after God. Which is why John writes to followers of Christ in his letter, Beloved, we are God's children now. But he doesn't stop there. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared, but... We know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 
So Jesus saves sinners as a friend of sinners because he values who they are now and what they can become. Man-made religion fails to value people now. The world fails to value what they can become and Jesus values both. And as a friend of sinners, he works to save them because he loves them. Which brings us to the need. Jesus to save you and Jesus to follow. See, I recognize some people here today are, are still wrestling with their doubts about who Jesus is or if that's really the life that you want. And so for those who are here this morning who have not met or do not know and have not placed your life in the hands of Jesus, I implore you to consider what the Bible teaches as a reality for all people, that we all have rebelled against God and we all have chosen our own ways over his. It doesn't matter how good or bad you think you are or society says you are. That doesn't matter. What matters is that God's word declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we fall under his right judgment, which the Bible says is forever separation from God. But the good news, once again, is this. Jesus saves sinners. He's the friend who will eat with you, who will call out to you, who will value you now, but also enable you to actually become someone truly glorious. Because as fully God and fully man, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to his Father in heaven, and he died in your place to forgive you, to undo the separation keeping you from God, and to put you on a path of transformation. And what he requests of you is to count the cost of giving your life to him, to turn away from your path of, of doing things your own way, which it calls sin, and to believe, place your life in the hands of Jesus. Paul puts it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a decision you can make today. You can cry out to God in your own words, within your own heart, in your own thoughts. And whether you make that decision now or at home later today or in 20 years, you will make a decision. You will make some sort of decision whether or not to receive this Jesus who is a friend to sinners. Now, there's also a need for those who already say, yes, I'm following Christ. I've placed my life in him. And what we need in this passage here is a Jesus to follow. Matthew, upon being called, immediately turns around and calls others just like him to meet Jesus. And if we follow a Jesus who saves sinners, then as followers of Jesus, we take up his mission. We are sinners saved to save sinners. That's our mission. We are sinners saved to save sinners. And there's three challenges that I want to leave you with uh, from this morning to help us to be focused on this and to do it well. First of all is to remember that you are a sinner saved. We need to remember what we were before the, the grace of God came into our lives, that we were just as lost that we were just as self-focused, just as clueless to spiritual things. We had to be forgiven just as much as those other sinners. There's a man named Harvey Turner. He's a pastor up at a church in Reno. I got to hear speak one time. And in his book, uh, Friend of Sinners, which I have this copy for you. It's called Friend of Sinners, An Approach to Evangelism. If someone would like to come grab that after the service. What he says is this. 
When we see this need for grace, we're more prone to be gracious to, pe to people who do not have it. You see, we need to remember where we came from, what God saved us out of, what he's continuing to have to do in our lives. That leads us to a humility that's central to any sort of our actions with anyone else. We're not the saviors. We're not the enlightened people who got it. We needed Jesus just to do the same. Paul himself connected his testimony to the gospel in this way. 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Jesus saves sinners, even me. This is testimony. So remember that you are a sinner saved. That's challenge one. But part of the mission is to save sinners, which means that just like Jesus, and here's the second challenge, we need to value people as they are. I see it's a regular temptation in my own heart to be just as blind as the Pharisees. And here's three areas that I'm trying to grow in that I'd love for you to join me in in this idea of valuing people as they are. First is to avoid Christian isolation. See, Jesus was called a friend of sinners, not because he wore a cool t-shirt, but because he was actually with them. We need to be intentionally pursuing friendships and meaningful interaction with those who do not believe. This might be go ahead and grabbing that lunch out with your coworkers or throwing parties for your neighbors to be able to come to and get to know each other or getting to know the, the other dads at the, the baseball games and care about what's going on in their lives. But remember, and this is the second part of it, people are not projects, okay? None of these people are, are notches in your belt. They're not points on the board. They are real people who want to be known and loved whether they accept Jesus or not. I read a really sad story this week of a lady who felt like every time she got to know a woman uh, and their kids who were Christians, that once she didn't accept Jesus as her Lord and Savior or go to church with them, they walked away and she had to explain to her kids why they didn't have their friends around anymore. I just broke my heart. People are not projects. And finally, it's about grace, not morality. See, we have to stop looking down our noses at the choices and morals of those who do not love Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They're not gonna try to live like Jesus wants them to. Our job's not to fix them, but to bring them to Jesus, to introduce them to the Savior and his transforming love. So these are the challenges. Remember that you're a sinner saved. Value people as they are. And finally, value what they can become through Christ. Because the other temptation I see in my heart, and you might identify with too, is that in the name of friendship, we decide to never say anything about Christ or sin or a person's need. Because we don't want to make people feel bad. But I hope that you will see this morning that that sort of friendship isn't really a loving friendship at all because you're robbing your friend of the thing that is most important, most life-giving and joy-filling and meaningful thing in your life. We cannot exalt acceptance to the neglect of rescue and transformation. Jesus came not only embracing sinners, but also bringing the good news of transforming them into something truly glorious. So be a real friend. And you don't have to pretend to have all the answers and be the enlightened bringer of all truth. Just be who you are. One beggar who can tell other beggars where to find bread. That's what we have to offer.
My dad was a firefighter for the city of San Luis Obispo for about 30 years. And uh, when he, early on, uh, I think prior to my birth, uh, he got to know a guy named Rick. And Rick was a coworker, and they actually, over the years, uh, worked at these two-man stations. So just be the captain and then the engineer working at these fire stations. And the two of them were night and day different. I mean, it was comical to, to see these guys uh, together because Rick was this laid-back surfer dude who's just looking for good times and good waves. And he was really easygoing, made friends real easily. He also uh, was real good at making money through real estate on the side from doing the fireman thing. And my dad was very different. He is a man of structure and discipline and doing the right things in the right way. And he had to have fun, you know, from 3 to 3.45. You know, it was scheduled and appropriate. Rick never had children. My dad was a family man. And also my dad's a father of Christ. And in his own words, my dad said he didn't make friends as easily. But even though they were opposite in so many ways, he made friends with Rick. And they'd talk about spiritual things. And Rick, very early on, got to know where my dad stood about Jesus. And my dad even gave him a Bible one Christmas. But nothing changed for Rick. Yet their friendship just continued and grew and kept them close. And after about 27 years of being friends, and 24 years after my dad gave him the first Bible, through a series of some real rough events in Rick's life, he told my dad that he was at the very bottom and he would actually consider religion. To which my dad very graciously said, if you truly mean it, I'll start meeting with you each week and I wanna introduce you to Jesus. And that's what he started to do. And about six months later uh, of doing those weekly uh, visits and reading the Bible together and telling him about a, a Bible-believing church near his house, Rick sat down next to my dad one day and he said, I thought I would hear trumpets. My dad's not catching on to what he's saying. He's like, what are, what are you talking about trumpets? He said, I thought when I asked Jesus to be the savior of my life, I would hear trumpets. See, The Greatest Showman, it's this entertaining bit of fiction that, uh, well, recasts exploitation as acceptance and friendship. But even the, the friendship that it puts in big lights, this friendship of the world, the, the world says is the ultimate good it's still not quite good enough. It's not nearly as good as the true friend of sinners, Jesus Christ. Jesus saves sinners as a friend of sinners because he values who they are and what they can become. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus so that he would save us, that he would accept us, love us, come to us and, and despite everything we bring to the table, he would give us the treasure of the kingdom himself. And so Lord, if there are those this morning who have not uh, come to you before, Lord, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts, that your spirit would move them to a place of shouting out, I'm done, I'm done with the way I've always done things. God, I need you I believe that your son Jesus is God. I believe that he died and you raised him again to life. And I want him to be the king of my life and save me. Lord, I pray that people would make that prayer, that we'd reaffirm our choice to, to follow you and our need for your grace and share that with others. Amen.